Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. John is actually traveling right now on business, so in studio is Michael Paris, and he has brought on a wonderful guest. In fact, it's a return guest from a podcast about six months ago, so you're going to have to go back and listen to that one as well, and that is Paul Dietrich. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good morning, Eric. How are you? Doing fantastic. Paul, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You bet. And Michael, I'm just going to hand it over because I'm here to learn from you guys. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll read to do a quick bio of Paul. As, as you said, Eric, Paul's a prior guest uh, on our podcast and he did a wonderful job. So we wanted to invite him uh, again. So if you have not listened to that podcast, please, please go back and do that. But uh, Paul Dietrich is the chief investment strategist for B. Riley Wealth Management. Uh, prior to that, in 2018, Money Manager Review uh, an independent performance ranking service for investment managers who are not mutual fund managers, uh, ranked Paul as the number one highest ranked equity investment manager in the U.S. in their latest top 50 five-star equity managers for risk, consistency, and performance over the past 15 years. He's a monthly on-air commentator and analyst for CNBC, Fox Business News, CNN and Bloomberg TV, and Yahoo Finance TV. Prior to that, he was the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Foxhall Capital Management from 1999 to 2012. Uh, before a sale in 2012, Foxhall Capital Manager Management managed almost $800 million in assets under management. Paul, thank you for being here. It's great to be here. So we have, well, a lot to talk about, I think, today. <laughs> so I hope we can get to it all. And, and, and one thing I wanted to I just jump right into on your last podcast, and actually this is feedback we got a lot from our listeners. One of the things that I, 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 I hate to say it as a controversial topic, but one of the things that you talked about was sort of the next recession that's that's coming in. Well, at the time, I think you said sometime this year in in 2020. Do you have any thoughts on that based on where where we sit today in the economy? Give us some updates on that front. Yeah, um, we. It's now. Uh, you know what? Let me uh, explain exactly how we look uh, and we predict uh, recessions. Um, we use uh, leading economic indicators, and those are the indicators that kind of go down eight to twelve months sometimes 18 months before the economy actually slips into recession. Let me give you an example. You know, we look very, very carefully at like shipping. So every month I'm looking at UPS and Federal Express and uh, ocean going shipping and the railroads because they report year over year increases or decreases in shipping. And so, you know, if someone's making a decision and let's take inventories, for example, uh, if if a store like Macy's is saying, well, I don't think we're going to sell as much this coming Christmas as we did last Christmas, so I'm going to pare back inventories, uh, that's a decision that will eventually affect uh, earnings and sales. And so if 
if you have less inventory, it's no surprise to anyone that six months from now in September or, uh, you know, near getting near the Christmas season, uh, that we're going to have fewer sales and that's going to result in lower earnings. And it's usually when earnings come out, that's when people think they know what's going on in the economy. Uh, but that's six to eight months later than the, the decisions that were made earlier on that, that created that. And so we look at these leading economic indicators, and there are about 20 of them, and there are 10 core major ones. And what we can see right now uh, is that the economy is definitely slowing. We had almost 3% growth uh, in 2018. The growth figures that came out uh, this past month uh, for 2019 show that we went down to 2.1% growth. That's kind of a substantial drop if you think about it, 3% to 2.1%. Uh, had it been 2%, that would have been a, a third uh, of the growth rate uh, going down. We're looking at 1.5 or 1.3 to 5 this year in 2020, and then sometime in 2021 now, we believe we'll start seeing negative growth, and that likely means a recession. So we still have growth. Uh, we were at 2.1% last year. And don't forget that the uh, the last four years of the Obama administration, we had an average of 2.2% growth and the stock market still went up. Uh, growth is growth, uh, even if it's slowing, but it's something that we have to watch. And right now, most of the leading economic indicators are going up. We're kind of in a recession with manufacturing. But, you know, manufacturing used to make up about 42, 43 percent of the U.S. economy 30 some odd years ago or longer. Uh, it now makes up 12.5 percent and is dropping. And 70 percent of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. And I think so long as we have effectively full employment, which we do now, that and wages going up, that that 70 percent of the economy kind of trumps everything else. And so right now, looking at our leading economic indicators, um, we've pushed off to probably the middle of next year uh, when we're going to see a recession. Uh, when more and more indicators start going negative, that's when you have to worry. And uh, I'll tell you, so that that's where we are right now. Yeah, and I, I know that this is obviously an election year. And I, one of the things that I also found interesting in our last podcast when you were talking is this being an election year and we're at the end of this uh, economic expansion period. And as everything, whether it's uh, the president President Trump or the Fed is going to do to keep this expansion going as long as he can, obviously it's after the election, whatever the results of that election may be. But I'm assuming that is still your position on, on things. And that's is that, in fact, actually delaying this to 2021 or is this totally independent? Uh, I, I think it's generally totally independent because full employment uh, has not a lot to do with the U.S. government. It has right. to do with the underlying economy. And so that, but that being said, there's no question that having 
uh, what we would we would call easy Federal Reserve policies, in that they're not raising rates, they're they're no they're not lowering them, but they're they're historically low. So money is easy to be had uh, in terms of borrowing for corporations, and uh, so the the government's doing everything it can. Uh, but uh, and and I don't think it's any surprise to anyone uh, who's listening that President Trump is going to use every lever of power that he has in order to keep this economy rolling at least through November 3rd of this year. Um, I've, I've often said that no matter who wins this election, um, the um, they're going to face at some point, probably in 2021, uh, a recession. And so... Uh, you know, there that is it going to be a major recession. Uh, it could be, uh, and uh, or it could. Uh, I don't. I don't see the bubbles that we saw in 2001 and 2002 when we had the dot com recession. You know, and people were paying unbelievable prices for uh, companies that had no earnings and you know, just had a dot com behind their name. Um, that was a bubble. We know the mortgage-backed security uh, bubble when, you know, people were lending uh, people on their houses 125% of the value of their house to right. people who, in many cases, didn't have a job. You know, you didn't have to be a brain surgeon to figure out that, that wasn't going to last forever. I look at the, the economy today and um, I just don't see the bubbles. I mean, some people talk about the student loan bubble, but you know, if you think about it, um, if someone defaults on their student loans, they're never going to get a house. I mean, it, it's really a disastrous situation. And again, most of the people with student loans are are college either in college or co college graduates, and they're the most likely people to get a good job in this economy. So <clears throat> most people feel that these are the people who are most likely to pay back their, their student loans. So I don't see a bubble like, you know, lending people who don't have jobs 125% of the value of their house. That's crazy. But um, what what we're seeing with the student loan bubble, I, I don't think that's a bubble. There is a lot of debt, corporate debt, but it's all manageable. Um, you know, there's a time uh, to raise, you can raise money two different ways with a corporation. You can either issue bonds uh, and, and raise money through debt, which it's really smart to do that when interest rates are really low, or you can issue stock. Uh, one way or another, that's how you got capital into your company. Uh, and right now with interest rates so low, it makes sense to have debt. Um, so I don't see that as a bubble. Uh, I think if we have a recession, it will be historically should be a, a medium recession, which means that the stock market would lose about 35%. You know, in 2001 and 2002, the market dropped 49% peak to trough during that recession. And in 2008 and 2009, peak to trough during that recession, we saw 57 percent drop uh, in the market uh, of the S&P 500. 
<clears throat> I think with under normal circumstances, this current recession or the upcoming recession would be a weak recession, which means we'd only see a 35% or thereabouts drop uh, in the stock market. Now, the I, I have one point of caution, and this is something that a lot of people haven't quite understood, is that the one thing we have now that we didn't have in 2001 and two and 2008 and 2009 recessions is we have what's called computerized algorithmic trading. And mm -hmm. that means that about 52 on any given day, about 52 percent of all trades on all exchanges in America are made by these computers and they have no human input. Uh, they they just do what they want uh, through artificial intelligence and algorithms. And what we didn't have this before, and what they tend to do is exacerbate trends. So, uh, as we saw, if you remember at Christmas time in 2018, uh, you saw the market drop because of the you know, worries about Chinese trade and also that the government was going to be shut down over the Christmas holidays and the stock market started to go down. And a lot of people were on vacation in Florida uh, because of Hanukkah and Christmas. And so there are very few traders on Wall Street. And at, at one point, computerized trading took over 72 percent of the trading uh, during that period of time. And when they saw a little downturn in the market, the computerized trading just ramped it down even further. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, when ETFs, exchange traded funds, have to kind of rebalance with their index that they they track to, there was more trading. And then, you know, the computerized trading would come in, you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes before the end of the uh, day and will ramp it down again. And the, the good news is, is that these computerized trading programs, they exacerbate trends both on the downside, but also on the upside. But what I fear is, is that the market could go down 35% under normal circumstances, but these computerized trading programs could, could dramatically uh, drop them to 50% or lower, at least for a day or two. And what happens during that is that the smaller investors, they just can't stomach watching their retirement savings go down 50%. Uh, you know, just psychologically, they can't do it, and they get out of the market. And unfortunately, when that happens, that that gets those computerized trading programs to even drop it down further. And... Uh, you know, at some point, sanity sets in and they can go up just as fast as they went down. But I do. That's one of the fears that everybody has, because we've never had a recession with um, this kind of computerized trading in the past. So it's something to be to know what's going on Um because it, it could be devastating to those people who are seeing it for the first time.
Yeah, that's really interesting, especially since we've been in this 10-year bull market. To your point, we haven't had a recession where you've had this technology that's been intertwined with with the trading. And, and I, I can definitely see that being an issue for, for a, a lot of investors. And so so with that in mind, what what are you advising your clients on with with this outlook of this recession in light of this uh, in vol- volatility, for lack of a better term, as a result of this trading? How are you approaching this with your clients? Well, our uh, our firm, uh, B. Riley Wealth Management, we have we believe in active management, um, and I, I actually agree with m- most of the people that uh, that say that you should stay in the market fully. Um, and uh, they they always say, well, if you stay in the market fully, uh, and then we go into a recession that you should just, uh, you know, just just go with the flow. Uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think in in bull markets, you should you should just try to be in uh, the stock market as fully as you can. Uh, I wouldn't have bonds uh, very much during a um, during an upward um, moving stock market. I mean, one of the things that you learn the first day that you're in an economics class for the first time is that the professor says, the only thing that we know 100 uh, percent with 100 percent certainty is that not in the short term, because the the stock market can go up or down because of a Trump tweet or something that happens overseas in Iran or South Korea. All sorts of things can affect the stock market on a short term basis. But in the long term, and they they value long term as any five year period you can conceive that in the long term, the stock market will always track the directional trend of the underlying economy. So if the underlying economy is expanding and going up, like we've seen over the last 10 years, the stock market will track that trend and be up over that same period of time. The the converse is true that when the underlying economy starts to decline in a recession, that the stock market 100% of the time will track that uh, that that turn in the economy down, and you will see a, a decline. And that's what we call a recession. I've always felt that these people who believe in staying in the market no matter what, uh, I that's never made sense to me. And I don't know any serious institutional investors who do that. Uh, I don't know the hedge funds that I know. They just get out during the recession. And... Um, I think that's what what people ought to do. I mean, a lot of these passive investment people, they put you in these 60-40 asset allocations. That's a very common one. 60% equities, 40% bonds. What that has done over the last 10 years is that you've only gotten 60% of the S&P 500 stock market returns. And because... Uh, bonds are, have paid nothing over the last 10 years. You haven't made a cent. You haven't even covered inflation with what you've made in, in the bonds. And you've only gotten 60% of the stock market returns. Well, that's kind of crazy if, in fact, we know from economics that 
you know, when the underlying economy is expanding, the stock market's going to, to, to track that directional trend. You ought to be 100 uh, percent in the stock market when uh, the underlying economy is growing and, and doing well. And then think about what that 60-40 asset allocation does when we go into a recession. You actually get 60% of the losses. Now, you are buffeted 40% because of the bonds, but you, you get 60% of the, of the growth for 10 years going up, and then you get 60% of the losses going down. That has never made any sense to me uh, as an investment strategy. And I've always found... You know, I, I hate to say this, but people who promote uh, passive investing where you just go into one of these asset allocations and you ride the stock market up and down and their argument is, well, you'll do just as well as the stock market in general. And that's true. But, you know, as I said, in the last two recessions, the first one went, the market went down 49%. The second one, the market went down 57%. Who wants to do as well as the market uh, in those cases? And so it makes more sense to me to treat to treat investing like it's more like a football or a basketball game. I mean, you got to know how to play offense and you got to play, know how to play defense. And, you know, if you played a football game only with your offensive team, you lose every time. And if you played the same football game with only your defensive team, you'd lose every time. So it makes some sense to me since there are two market cycles, one where you have the ball you want to make as many gains and 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 run up the score as much as you can during a 10-year uh, bull market when the economy underlying economy is expanding and then when we go when the ball changes and and your uh, the field changes and you're going into a recession your whole goal is defensive. You don't want to give up the gains that you lost, uh, you know, that you, you gained during the uh, bull market. I always tell my clients the best money they'll ever make is the money they don't lose in a bear market recession right. because it takes so long to recover. You know, think about it. If you buy a stock for $100 and it drops 50%, the stock's worth $50. But in order to go from... $50 back to break even, $100, that's a 100% gain. And you can't do that. I don't care whether you're Warren Buffett or the greatest investor in the world. You can't do that quickly without taking a lot of risk. You know, we know that the stock market on average goes up about 8% a year. So those people back in 2001 and 2002 who lost 49%, it took them, you know, six years to get back to break even. And guess what? At the end of 2002, when or when the market started to go up again, uh, six years later, we went into 2008 and the 2008-2009 recession. So people had just broken even uh, in 2008 to where they were in 2000. And then we hit uh, another recession that went down 57%. And even though we've had a 10-year bull market, most people who lost 57%, it took them six to seven years 
to get back to break even. So they've only really made some money for the last three years. So you go back to 2000, which is now 20 years ago, most people have only had three years of gains during that if they were passive investors. That is not a way to build your retirement savings. And so it only makes sense to me. And and what's interesting is this is how all the big institutional investors invest. They get out of the market uh, during these recessions. Uh, insurance companies do that. And, and the way they all do it is that they look at these leading economic indicators that turn down before the rest of before people know that the economy is going down. And um, and that's what we do. That's what I I do with my clients. I've been doing it since my, 1999. You can see on my performance charts where in 2001 and 2002, I made 7% for my clients when the market went down 49%. And in 2008 and 2009, I got a little bit caught off by uh, – um, by Lehman Brothers collapse, we did lose 6% during that time, but the stock market lost 57%. So it took us a matter of a few months to recover uh, that 6% loss. And it took people six, seven years to recover from the 57% loss because you had to make up about 120% to get back to break even. And you know, that's what people are facing in the next recession. Even if it only goes down 35%, it's going to take you four, five years to to break even. Why why do you want to do that? You want to start from break even anyway. And that that's why you have to think of investing as a, having an offensive investment strategy when the underlying economy is growing and expanding and earnings are going up and unemployment's going down and wages are going up. And the minute that all that turns, you need to get out of the market. And, and you need a manager or a signal that will get you out of the market. That was really a great perspective, Paul. I really appreciate that that insight. And uh, you know, I know that from 2000 to 2010 is often referred to as the lost decade. And and I think you did a good job of explaining why a lot of people refer to it that way. Uh, that's exactly right. Well, I think we're actually running out of time, Paul. But I'd love to have you uh, back on because I think this is really uh, really interesting conversations that we're having. And if you wouldn't mind joining us for the next podcast, I'd really like to jump into maybe some of the uh, trade issues that have been uh, developing recently, maybe look at some political uh, implications for this year. If you wouldn't mind coming back, we can discuss that as well. Love to. Thank you. All right, guys, this was fantastic. Uh, Michael and Paul, I'll tell you what, I, I've never heard it explained that way, Paul, as far as the, you know, the, going into the recession, losing all that money possibly, and then just that, what, six to eight years later, hit again. And wow, I mean, so that's a long time to wait for some sort of gain, you know, almost 20 years in there, two decades to get three years of gain. That that was really eye-opening to me. So I really appreciate the, that perspective. Michael, again, thanks for bringing him on, and I look forward to the next podcast. No problem. All right, and I want to thank all our listeners for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. 
Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services, Incorporated, a member of FINRA SIPC Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors, Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of APFS and APA. Any opinions expressed in this forum are not the opinion or view of American Portfolios Financial Services, Incorporated, APFS, or American Portfolios Advisors, Incorporated, APA, and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors.